So there are lots of reasons like that. Why it can't literally, minerality, whatever it is, can't literally be the taste of minerals extracted from the vineyard soils and they're in the wine glass. Welcome to the Fermenting Place podcast, the one podcast that concerns itself with the co-ferment of people and place. Here, we take deep dives via casual conversation into the infinitely fascinating world of fermentative beverages, such as wine and other drinks. I'm your host, Daniel Honan. My guest for episode 36 of the Fermenting Place podcast is retired geologist, wine grower, and occasional writer of wine, as seen through an appropriate geological lens, Dr. Alex Maltman, Emeritus Professor of Earth Scientists at Aberystwyth University in Wales. Dr. Maltman has caused a bit of defensible controversy over the last few years with his insight into how geology influences wine, especially around the nebulous concept of minerality. In episode 36, Dr. Maltman and I discuss Gavin and Stacey, Welsh wine growing, geology, rocks and soils, the myth or matter of fact of minerality, why beer rocks harder than wine, and much more of course. Don't forget, if you dig what you hear, consider exchanging a little value for value. You can show your support for the show and help to ensure its sustainability by becoming a subscriber via Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash Honan Daniel. Otherwise, you can make a one-off donation via PayPal by clicking the icon link on the Fermenting Place website over at fermentingplace.com. Or if you want to join me and others in the future, download a podcasting 2.0 app, such as the Sphinx Chat or Breeze Wallet apps, stack it with some sats and stream a few my way in real time. You can also join the Fermenting Place podcast tribe on the Sphinx Chat app, where you can message and chat with other listeners of the podcast, stream sats, and exchange a little value for value with me in real time. Log on to fermentingplace.com for more info on ways you can show your support for the show and enable the sustainable production of quality, ground-up, listener-led content creation. At the very least, do me a solid and click that subscribe, follow button, and like, share, or leave a comment, just so that you're the first to know when a new episode drops and so that more and more people can grow their know about the important co-ferment of people and place. Right, so with intros and a little bit of light shilling now firmly behind us, please listen, like, share, subscribe, and enjoy. Episode 36 of the Fermenting Place podcast, featuring enological geologist, Dr. Alex Maltman. In, I, I don't know how to pronounce it, Aberystwyth? Uh, imagine the Ys, if you see the word, as eyes. So if you say Aberystwyth, that's spot on. Aberystwyth. Istwyth. Aberystwyth. Istwyth is the name of the river. Aber is like Inver in Scottish. Uh-huh. In, um, uh, so it means at the mouth of the Istwyth, Aberystwyth. Simple, really. It's those wise that put um, English speakers off. <laughs> Fair play. Um, a quick question. Other rest of it, yeah. Have you ever have you ever watched Gavin and Stacey? I sure have. Okay. Several times. Yeah, well, <laughs> me as well. I actually have been to Barry Island because of that show. All right. Um, yeah. But there's a there's a, a an inside joke 
I think in the third season, um, where Gavin gets a job in Cardiff and one of his colleagues is called Owen Hughes. And then Owen, yes, Owen, yes, Owen Hughes. And then he says, and by the way, no, I don't. What does that mean? Oof. Don't know. Okay. It's not some sort of, it, maybe it's just, it's not even a joke. I don't know. I thought it was a Welsh thing. Um, I, I don't know, <laughs> Daniel. I, I, I don't know. And you've got to remember that South Wales. Ah, fair. The fair. Central Wales, which is very rural where I live. Very different to um, South Wales. Pretty well speaking around here too. Sheep all around me. Uh, so it's very different to Barry Island. <laughs> so the kinds of phrases and things they do in um, Barry Island and down there in South Wales, yeah, it doesn't necessarily apply here. In, okay. In the, in the so north. So no, you got me there. I don't know that. But nevertheless, uh, the Welshness of it, because Welsh doesn't get much of a crack in um, in the UK. It's all England, you know? Uh-huh. Uh, um, it's probably like people in the middle of uh, Western Australia think it's all New South Wales and Sydney and stuff. Um, so it was refreshing to have uh, Wales quite highlighted in that series. And so it was just kind of nice to hear Welsh accent and, yeah. and those sorts of things. And it was a clever series. Though. It was clever it's, a cracking, it's a cracking TV show. Absolutely. Yeah, we, yeah. we re-watched it recently. Um, I'll tell you something. I've got to say this. But when I travel the world, people are mystified when I say Wales. Well, well what's Wales? Is it England? In Australia or New Zealand or South Africa, I don't have to explain it mm-hmm. because of the rugby. Of course. <laughs> and in Australia, because in New South Wales, you know, Australians have got a better idea what Wales is, whereas, believe me, in most of the world, it's just a mystery. Yeah, we're etymologically connected, aren't we? Yep. So, I'm going to dive straight in and do a little hard cut, but this is, the voice you're hearing is Professor Alex Maltman, um, who is a... Um, a professor of geology, is that correct, Alex? Well, I was. I've been retired for quite a lot of years now. Right. But uh, for many years, I taught earth science, yes, geology. And you're in Aberystwyth. Uh, I knew I'd screw this up. Aberystwyth. Yes. The wise eyes. In the middle of Wales. The wise come out pretty much like an eye. It's on the <laughs> coast in the middle of Wales in western UK. In the west of UK. Aberystwyth. And you I taught did. at Aberystwyth University for quite some time, um, teaching students about geology and its um, connections, I guess, which is one of the reasons why I asked you to appear on the Fermenting Place podcast to, to talk about um, the geological connections and interrelationships between, I guess, rocks, soils, vineyards, and thus wine, but also spirits and beer as well. It's something that I want to touch on in the conversation. Um, yeah, great. Yeah, I mean, for forty odd years, I was a geologist, but this the wine spirits thing was purely a hobby on the side. I didn't publish on it or anything. I was doing other things to do with mountain building and the deep oceans and heaven knows what. It was only since my retirement I've brought all this uh, hobby-based knowledge that has accumulated because I've made wine myself for 
40 years, grown grapes here and all sorts of things. Uh, in my retirement, it all came together and I brought the geology into this drinks world, but that was never my professional career. It's, um, oh. it's, it's, it's the fun I'm having now. I suddenly find I've got the knowledge that just by serendipity I've accumulated over the decades visiting wineries, which I've always enjoyed doing, and distilleries. I brewed my own beer for a long time. Suddenly I find, hey, I can bring all this together, and people are, some people are interested in how it all gels, yeah. rocks, soils, and, uh, and the rest of it. So uh, I'm just having fun in my retirement now. <laughs> Fair play. That's fantastic. Well, count me as one of those people that are interested. And uh, I presume there's a few people listening that are also interested. You mentioned that you dabble a little bit in wine making. Do you dabble in wine growing? Do you grow the fruit, the grapes? Yeah. 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 I, very small scale. I got something like 26 vines, I think. But I always said it doesn't really make a lot of difference whether you have 20 vines or 20,000, the principles are the same. You still have to make decisions on the trellising of the vines, the pruning, the harvesting, what kind of vessels to ferment in, how you do it. The principles are the same. And so really, although I started growing grapes and making wine, purely for fun, purely for a hobby, I've learned one heck of a lot about the science and technology behind it, even though it's on this very, very a tiny uh, home-based scale. It's, um, yeah, I'm about to harvest next week, I guess, because the grapes are looking nice and golden and ready to go. Happy but days. I've got to make those same decisions as people with the enormous vineyards in uh, Riverina do, you know? It's, yeah. um, it's the same principle. It's a question of scale, right? Yeah, principles are the same. Mm, mm. So you're, what are you growing and, and, and what's the climate like? Talk, talk. Can you just ah, my illustrate? Oh, I, I've got uh, well, they're, they're hybrid grapes. They're not true Vitis vinifera. It's pretty difficult to, to ripen them here. So I've got um, Seval Blanc and Bacchus, which are nice. You know, if you if you get past the mental block, the wine has to be Chardonnay or Pinot Noir or mm-hmm. one of the classic no. French noble things. You know that the end result. I'm not saying mine are the end results can be perfectly acceptable. And some commercial winemakers in Northern Europe, England, Holland, Belgium, Germany, are, are, are now showing this. Some of the English backers than wines are really very, very nice. So those are what I grow. The climate, well, it's a damp climate here in West Wales. So there's certainly no water problem <laughs> like you have in parts of Australia. Um, the, the problem is ripening the grapes in the autumn this time of year for us, mm-hmm. um, getting enough sunshine and warmth to get that last bit of ripening, that, that's a challenge. And my challenge right now is wasps. Oh. They love to come unstuck on the sugar, on the you sugar. know, and how do I keep the damn things off? If you've got 20,000 vines, you can maybe take a bit of damage. But ah, I see these damned wasps. Well, the birds like to go for them too. But I can net for the birds, uh-huh. but I can't net against the wasp because the mesh would have to be so fine, yeah. it would shade the grape. And so this all-important ripening, the exposure to the sunlight and the warmth, 
that that would be curtailed by putting a, a fine mesh on them. So these damn wasps, that, that's a, a challenge, shall I put it nicely. Um, but anyway, it works. It works. Um, I'm not saying my wine's very good. It's certainly nice to have it for cooking and stuff. But uh, what I'm saying is it's fun and I learn from it. I yes. learn from it. Perfect. you instant. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that sounds awesome. So um do you you bottle them, obviously, and you pass yeah, them around yeah. and you crack bottles open with amongst friends and family and things like this? Family, yes, because <laughs> they understand it. Great wine. I'm not pretending it is. Um, you know, and good wine and the wine store is so cheap. No way. It's nice to do. It's nice to have, and um, but I don't really sit around sipping it. It's not up to that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> what What's the um, What's the geology like underneath the vines there? Oh, the geology. Oh, well, I would say wholly irrelevant here. Uh, because there's a lot of debris, ice block, you must ice age, glacial debris between the topsoil where the vine roots are and the actual intact solid bedrock. Mm-hmm. But seen as you asked, it's, um, it's shale, a mudstone, grey rocks that formed about um, 450 million years ago. It's in a period of geological time you may have heard of called the Ordovician, mm-hmm. which was followed uh, by a period of time called the Silurian and was preceded by a period of time you more likely to have heard of called the Cambrian. Of course. The wine grows in his coat, like the big thing about Cambrian, because they've got what they call Cambrian soil. I'm mentioning these words because they're all, they all come from Wales. They're Welsh-based words. Oh, They're really? They're named after pieces in Wales. In fact, <laughs> this is trivia for you. The Welsh word for Wales is Cymru. I won't bother about how it's spelled, but it's pronounced Cymru. And when the Romans came here 2,000 years ago, they couldn't pronounce Cymru. They Latinized it to Cambria. Huh. Cambria came from the Welsh whale, Cambria, and the adjective Cambrian. So when rocks of this age were first identified, the early geologists called them Cambrian rocks after the Welsh for whales. And now there are Cambrian rocks all over the world. As I say, for example, Heathcote, for example, they make a big thing about our wines are special because of Cambrian soils, which is a bit misleading. We might get onto that. But anyway, this word Cambrian comes from um, the Welsh for Wales, and as I say, older vision and Silurian are also things to do with Wales. So what's the time scale that we're talking here? Because where I am in the Hunter, I know that the geological timeline is is roughly somewhere around the Permian age when when all the the, the rivers drain the inland sea, which is 240 million. But Cambrian, yeah, but, I think, off the top of my head, was 500 million. Is that correct? You got it. Okay. Hold on. Yep. So that, uh, that's counterintuitive for me because I would have thought that, that Wales would have relatively younger soils or, or rather younger uh, geology than in Australia. I mean, obviously not in all of Australia, but you know, there's, there's, a, there's a bit of geology at the back of Broken Hill that's some half a billion 
or, or something like half the time of, of the of the planet for two. Oh yes, and out west, Western Australia, some of the oldest rocks in the world. Right, like you're getting up to the best part of four billion years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But, but so, so the the Cambrian name was right. was originated in in Wales. But I would have thought, being part of the UK and that sort of thing, and this is obviously I'm totally lost here. But intuitively, <laughs> yeah. I would have thought that that mm. being near nearer Europe, it would have younger soils. Um. But again, uh, no, I'm probably uh, all over no, the map. No, no, no. There's a tremendous variety of geology in the British Isles. And um, in the early days of geology, when Cambrian age rocks and younger were identified, mainly through the fossils they contained, they realized there were older rocks than that, but they were very, very difficult to work with and decipher. They couldn't really see any fossils in them. We now know that there, that there are, but they're, they're tricky things. And so they just called it all oh, pre-Cambrian. And <laughs> so there was this period of time called pre-Cambrian, a word we still use. But in fact, now it turns out pre-Cambrian is the bulk of the Earth's history. Because mm. the Earth is 4.6 billion years old. Well, the pre-Cambrian is the 4 billion years. And all the other things that you've heard of, like you say, Permian and the rest of it, Jurassic, famous one, Carboniferous, mm. um, they're all squeezed into that last point six. So in fact, the pre-Cambrian oh, wow. is pretty important. And a lot, large parts of certainly Western Australia have pre-Cambrian rocks, but parts of the UK, particularly um, Northwest Scotland, if you've heard of the islands called the Hebrides, the Outer Hebrides are pre-Cambrian and parts of mainland Scotland are pre-Cambrian. So in the British Isles, it just so happens, for reasons I won't go into, we've got the whole gamut here. Uh, uh -huh. And it just so happens in what now Wales, um, they are of Cambrian age. But I must make one point, um, more um, relevant point to, to vineyards and wine here, uh, Daniel, if I may. Yeah. The difference between the age of the bedrock, the geology, which is what we're talking about here, and the age of the overlying loose material with humus in it, organic material in it, in which plants grow, that's the soil. Invariably, the soil is very much younger than the bedrock. Mm -hmm. They're unrelated. The bedrock can be of any age, but the soil will have formed, well, in much of, uh, certainly uh, Europe, uh, Northern Europe, Britain in the last 10,000 years since the last ice age. New Zealand's the same. Mm -hmm. Any area that was affected by ice in the last ice age is not going to have soils older than 10,000 years when the ice finally went, no matter how old the bedrock is. So, say in northern Scotland, as I said, you can have bedrock which is 3 billion years old, but the soil is only 5,000 years old. There are some parts of the wine-growing world that weren't affected by the ice, of which Australia, or not Tasmania, but, but Australia, South Africa are one, Uruguay is another one, where you can have quite old soils. But even so, the soils are nothing like as old as the bedrock. And that's why I hiccuped a little bit when I mentioned Heathcote, because hmm. they talk about their Cambrian soil. The soils are not Cambrian age. It's the bedrock mm -hmm. that's Cambrian age, and the soils have just formed in the last 
thousands of years, maybe being Australia there, it could be a million or something, but vastly younger than the bedrock. So when we're in this business of geological ages and time, we have to be careful to distinguish between the age of the soil, which almost always is quite young, mm-hmm. uh, and the age of the bedrock, which can be anything, and quite commonly is vastly older. People often blur this together. Yeah. Um, they use, know, like, I guess, the terms soil and geology or rocks or you know whatever the yeah. constituent parts are interchangeably so that... Um, I mean, look, people even interchangeably use the word soil and dirt to get together to mean a similar thing, even though dirt is dead soil and pretty much useless. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's the, it's the soil that's the key to the growing vine, really. That's where the humus is. That's where the roots That's where the nutrients forming. are. That's where the nutrients are. The one thing that might not be there is some water. Many vines might have a deep root, which gets down into fissures in mm-hmm. the bedrock, mm-hmm. trying to find water that may have been stored there. But if those deep roots are not going to get very much in the way of nutrients from way down there. The nutrients are up near the top. So another myth <laughs> is about um, deep-rooting vines have extra complexity and so on. Yeah, sounds good, but, but, you know, those deep roots, if there are such things, if the bedrock allows it, are all about water. Yes. Uh, not, not the nutrients. The nutrients come from pretty shallow levels, usually. So then this gets into this concept that I guess you're perhaps most known for, uh, which is, you know, minerality. And I've just um, had published a, a, an article on minerality for Gourmet Traveller Wine current issue whenever this pod, podcast episode goes out um sure people can look it up online but um this this idea of 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 minerality that that wine writers like myself and winemakers and all sorts of impassioned wine people uh love to use is often misused um because it doesn't mean what the science says categorically definitively that it uh, that it actually means i was talking to a wine grower some years ago in central otago and they were talking about their vine roots uh, penetrating deep below the, the the soil and into the bedrock and in central they have quite a lot of schist um mm-hmm. and yep. the the roots were kind of impregnating themselves i suppose within the bedrock and 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 breaking up um the uh the rock actually there's a there's a word that you used um in one of your writings which i really liked uh when you were talking about the douro valley um in portugal um and what was it here to probe and exploit rainwater which has percolated downwards. So the grower was talking about how this was a demonstration of terroir. Um, and, and, you know, perhaps in a way, but you would argue that um, the vine is merely seeking out water and that anything that's soluble from the rock is not going to transmit into the glass irrespective because rocks don't taste. 
Yeah, and they don't dissolve. So that water is not going to have a lot dissolved in it from the rock. Rocks don't dissolve on the time scale we're talking about. Um, yeah. Uh, well, as you say, Daniel, wine writers and wine promoters love talking about minerality. And I guess wine drinkers see it as a desirable thing, whatever it is. It's seen as a desirable thing. So as an old friend of mine called Richard Smart, do you know the name? Australian? No, I can't say uh, that I do. I'm sorry. Great, sorry, great Richard. Viticultural guru. Uh, some of the listeners who are into wine will know of Richard Smart. He said to me once, well, if minerality is desirable in a wine, and it's just the taste of minerals, well, the winemaker can just simply lob some minerals into his wine. Just add some at the end. And there you go. Wow, it's got minerals. <laughs> Obviously, it doesn't work. In fact, interestingly, it works the other way around. If you try that, the wine doesn't taste very good. Uh, you can test this with drinking water. You start adding metals and things to drinking water, it starts to taste disagreeable. So, uh, right, for starters, there's one reason why this perception that people get when they drink a wine that they call minerality is just a label. It's just a word to try and express this sensation that they're getting. Mm -hmm. And it just happens to be a word which immediately conjures up all sorts of things to do with the ground, the soil. And everybody knows there are minerals in the soil. But those are geological minerals, complicated compounds that make rocks. Not the same thing as the few bits of metal that might be in a wine. So minerality is just a label. It's a term. And then there's endless debate, as you well know, Daniel, about what exactly it means. It means different things to different people. Uh, all kinds of nuances and arguments about whether it's a mouthfeel, an aroma, a taste, and the rest of it. This comes about because it's just a label for a personal perception. Mm -hmm. And the fact it happens to be the same word as mineral is just a well, coincidence, really. It makes it a nice word, and it, uh, it checks the box of people wanting to relate wine to the soil and to the ground. But uh, really, the connections are extremely tenuous and indirect. It's just a term for a taste sensation. It's an it's a nice term, and it it's a descriptive term. And when it's used correctly, it can give, I think, the reader a sense of what they may perceive in that wine or what they could potentially pick. Well, it's hard to say uh, using it correctly because nobody can agree what well, it is. is. There isn't a correct or incorrect. It's what well, this you is, want it to be. This is my if podcast. If you're tasting a wine and you, you say, <laughs> well, I'm getting minerals, well, nobody can dispute that. If you're perceiving minerals, then that's what you're perceiving. There's no right or wrong. The only wrong thing is that if you then go on to say, and these are minerals, that have been transmitted by the vine through from the vineyard soil. That won't work. But what it is you're perceiving, well, that's your business. <laughs> well, for, That's for, why scientists can't get to grips with this thing. Well, what is it? Is it acidity? Is it salt for this? Is it that? Well, it's very difficult to sort of analyze if the tasters can't agree, even on whether this wine is mineral or not. And this is demonstrably the case. There's an interesting work about different 
cultures, different uh, nationalities cause, uh, call different wines mineral and so on. Well, if it's that vague, albeit fun and useful, then science can't start analyzing what it's due to if you don't even know what it is. But there's no question it's a useful, fun word. Yeah, nothing wrong with using it, except it is so incredibly vague that, well, how, how meaningful it is, is, um, well, <laughs> is debatable. <laughs> well, look, for the, for the purposes of argument and for argument's sake, um, and, and at the risk of being a little bit prescriptive, let's just say that this is my podcast and I use the word uh, minerality descri- to describe an absence of fruit uh, and mm. potentially acidity. Um, but, you know, as you said, these are, it's, it's almost like the subjective theory of value. Everybody has a, has a perspective on it. And, and who am I to... Um, to tell anybody how they should be thinking about that word. And I think a lot of people would agree that if, you, if you're not getting more obvious perceptions like fruit or particular aromas or something, then you're left with, yeah, minerality. That, yeah, that could be, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, could you describe then, Alex, why, um, you know, why this, this, this term uh, gets misused from your perspective as a, as a geologist. You know, rocks don't taste. It's a scientific fact. Um, the only way to really taste a fresh rock, as, as you've explained to me in the past, is if you were to split uh, a rock open and have a fresh surface free of any um, debris or, or um, deritus mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. lick it, and then you would find mm-hmm. out that it doesn't actually taste like anything. It's almost mm-hmm. a little bit like water in the, in the fact that when you drink water you know you're not tasting water you're actually tasting an absence of saliva well water can have things dissolved in it right uh, of course water can have a taste um pure water doesn't have a taste but rarely does one encounter pure, pure water, water. Right. but I, un- I understand that pure water what we call deionized water or distilled water if you will uh tastes pretty awful because it has no taste. It's just sort of insipid. It, you know, the, the, the nice taste we put give to bottled waters and most tap waters is, is the stuff that dissolves in it. Um, well, yes, I, uh, I just felt the need some years back seeing mineralogy being used left, right, and center in a literal way, the taste of, of minerals from the ground, to marshal the arguments why scientifically it couldn't be literally that. And so I published, a, a, if I may say so, a much quoted paper about the scientific reasons why it cannot be literal. And it's partly that geological rocks and minerals have no taste, as you've just outlined, Daniel. It's partly because Vine roots are very selective in the nutrients they take up. Vines don't need many nutrients, and the 14 or so nutrients, uh, potassium, calcium, magnesium, and so on, that they do need are only needed in very small quantities, which is why vines can grow in pretty stony-looking barren land Mm -hmm. where other crops just wouldn't survive. That's exactly why. So we're talking about very tiny quantities. And if we put those quantities in water, well, we can't taste them. 
So how can there be traces in wine where there are all these organic compounds, thousands of them, that are highly aromatic and tasteable? Well, no, we can't trace it. There might be some cumulative indirect effect, a little bit like I always say, like putting a bit of salt on a meal. Hopefully you don't taste the salt, but the salt can enhance the flavor. Well, it might be that these metals in the wine working together might have some taste effect, but thinking along those lines is a long way from saying, oh yeah, the roots are taking up the minerals and we are tasting them. You can't literally taste them. And if, the, if they were there in sufficient quantity to taste, then I think, as I already mentioned, it would not be a nice taste. And so there are lots of reasons like that why it can't literally, minerality, whatever it is, can't literally be the taste of minerals extracted from the vineyard soils and there in the wine glass. And I'd like to think, um, what I've argued has been successful. I think most wine writers have accepted that. And I very rarely see now people literally saying, ah, yes, this minerality is the literal taste of minerals from the ground. I think to that extent, <laughs> he's been successful and worthwhile. But all the time I see phrases like, oh, the volcanic soils in our vineyard are giving a minerality to the wine. Oh, this wine is mineral because of the granite soils in the vineyard. Mm. So <laughs> it's not this literal um, stating it clearly and blandly. It's a more subtle, indirect connection that's still used all the time. So people are still inferring uh, a connection between this taste perception and the minerals in the soil. So by no means has it gone away. What writers who will be perfectly happy to say, oh, it's not the literal taste, yeah, we know that. And then they're going to say, ah, oh, this, this wine's very mineral. It's because of the gray, wacky soils or the schists in Otago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, they still latch onto this because it's such a good story. Mm-hmm. It sounds so good. And uh, people are very reluctant to discard it. But uh, when you look at the science, well, you know, all the time lurking in the background, you've got the organic chemicals that formed in the ripening grape and fermentation has developed very tasteful, very aromatic compounds. These are the things that are making wine taste like it does. And the whole thing is so dependent on the different aspects of climate uh, in the uh. vineyard, sunlight, temperature, all those things. And then how the winemaker allows those, what we call flavor precursors, to develop in the winery. That's his choice, not to do very much or to manipulate this. But it's how these organic compounds evolve into the wine that determines what the wine tastes like. And meanwhile, those tiny, tiny amounts of literally untastable, inorganic elements, Mm-hmm. Like I say, uh, calcium, manganese, all that. Um, they're lurking in the background, but really they've got very little to do with what the wine tastes like, the way I see it. These are Scientific. these are, are cations, right? Um, is that a... uh, yeah, yes, if they're positively charged. If you've got a compound, the first part of the compound, like sodium chloride, for example, the first part, the sodium, is the cation. 
And if you can remember your chemistry, it's got a little plus next to it, uh -huh. or in some cases, two pluses. That's the cation. It's positively charged. The second bit, the chloride bit, is negatively charged. That's the anion. Anion. Okay. So I have to correct you if I may just slot this in. In, in that article you've just published, which you kind of... Oh, don't do that, Alex. Come moment. on, this is... You say iodine. <laughs> you say iodine's a cation. Well, iodine's an anion. That's the negative bit. <sighs> so sodium iodide, potassium iodide. Iodine is the, is the anion. It's the negative bit. That's the difference between um, cation and anion, positive, negative. And well, so the... the uh, nutrients that binds and other plants and us need uh, are are these cations. Nitrogen in the case of plants, phosphorus, um, phosphorus is in the cation. But then there's uh, mainly metals: mm -hmm. calcium, magnesium, manganese. Uh, I can't remember all the rest. But, mm. but I mean, and there are some that. Well, I was going to say, in effect, the long and short of it is, it's a metaphorical leap to use this, ter this term minerality to describe a wine. And it's perfectly acceptable, so long as you don't literally think that you are tasting rock. Or linking it to the soil in any kind of direct way. Right, okay. Which is going to upset and disappoint a hell of a lot of people. Um, <laughs> I know because it's a lovely term and I don't want to spoil the fun but I feel as a scientist I've got to point out well that's the point of science is right? Is, and then people can do with it what they want you can unweave but, I mean, the rainbow but then thought. have a, a greater appreciation of the rainbow once it's unweaved because you can put it oh, back well, in your yes. mind again I would say that as I try to say in my book um, with this scientific knowledge I think your appreciation is enhanced. It ought to be, for sure. It ought to be. It ought to be. But, I mean, here's a question. Minerality has been knocking around for a couple of decades now, absolutely exploded in use. It's such a nice, useful term. Well, what about before then? More or less the same wine. What, why were they not mineral then? Well, we used other words. Other words, exactly, right austere, lean, steely, things like that. And people were happy with that. And you could still use those words now. Most people would agree that shabbily, you say, perhaps the mineral wine par excellence, you could say is steely, is, is lean and so on. But it's just that mineral sounds so much nicer. And it conjures up this picture of a relation with the soil. Mm -hmm. And sadly, that's uh, not going to work, really. <laughs> So can, can we perhaps find how this geological term, with minerality notwithstanding, how geology interacts with um, the grapevine to, to, I guess, contribute to the production of a wine, to the growing of, yeah. a, of a grape and the, and the production of a wine? Yeah. How, how, can, take me through that. Yeah. In principle, it's the water. Water is the big one because demonstrably the water supply to the vine has a big effect on how the grapes swell and ripen and therefore what organic compounds form in, in, in the grape. To start with, the soil has to be well drained, lacking water, 
vines won't grow in boggy ground. So you've got to have the geology giving a soil that's well-drained, but yet have some way of storing sufficient water so that in the ripening seasons, which could be quite dry, the vines can tap into that water to swell the grapes uh, and make the wine. So water is the big one. Right. I said carefully at the beginning, in principle, because it's so important that in practice, it's not the geology that's doing this, but it's the wine, the vine grower. He will manipulate the water supply for his needs, especially in Australia. Uh, if the soil is not well drained, but he wants to grow vines there, well, put in drains, increase the drainage. That's what farmers do. And more importantly, if there isn't sufficient water, then you irrigate. And as you well know, a lot of Australian vineyards are irrigated. They have to be. There's insufficient water in the soil. Mm. So the natural geology and its water-holding characteristics are kind of overridden, as it were, by intervention because the water is so important. But at least the geology is the starting point for that. It will determine how much irrigation is needed and so on. So in these sorts of ways, the water is the big contribution. There can be other contributions in more marginal climate. The color of the soil may affect the heat, radiation and storage and the light reflectance and things like that. Um, there is a lot of interest right now in the microbiology of the soil, the yeast and the bacteria and so on. The, the soil the food soil. web. The soil food web, exactly. Mm. The soil microbiome and its connection with the air microbiome, the wild yeast in the air, which some winemakers use for the fermentation. And there's a fair bit of evidence that that depends, that the, the soil food web in the soil depends to some extent on the geology, on the chemistry of the, of the geological minerals and so on. So there may be another indirect role of the geology through influencing the soil food web, if you like, the, the, the soil microbiome. Still unclear what this means for wine flavor, but potentially it could be quite important. Mm. So geology, in an indirect way, could could have quite an important role there, lurking in the background. So I, I think these are the the ways in which the vineyard geology comes into the picture, and it does come into the picture as I've just tried to outline. But my bugbear is that it's just over exaggerated. Right. Such a nice story. People <laughs> so love relating wine to the soil that they just go to town a bit too much in it. And so much of the wine taste is to do with the soil. And uh, I would argue, as I've touched on here, that nah, not to that extent. It's overhyped, I think. But it is part of the picture. I'm not saying it's irrelevant. It's part of the picture for the reasons I've touched on. But it's this whole vineyard geology thing that all the promoters love and <laughs> wine journalists love to talk about. Ah, it's over-exaggerated, I think. Well, okay. So, I, I mean, I, I take your point. And, you know, rather than, I guess, letting marketers um, tell us what to think about 
the, the, the wine or the, the types of drinks we like to drink. Science is giving us a tool um, to, to understand it objectively on, on, I guess, on our own terms so that, so that you can get a, um, a clearer picture of what's occurring. What I find interesting with this conversation, though, Alex, is when I taste wines, and I learn of the, shall we say, the soil profile or the geology that makes up that particular vineyard site, it seems to have a discernible impact on the, on the wine's expression, particularly on something like texture. And if I think of some local examples that come to mind, Tyrrell's Jono's Shirah is uh, a, 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 a vineyard site that's grown on sandy soils and it's quite light and um and pretty and elegant and i always think of like f1 race cars when i when i sip on that wine as opposed to something like their old patch or even four or eight acres which are grown on deeper red clays um and you can see them they're they're quite beautiful sort of looking soils um they've got a little bit more heft and weight and body and dare I say power similar to perhaps like a V8 uh, race car if we use the race car analogy following on but uh, that for me is that is am I imbuing that quality myself because of of what I I look at the, the way I look at the soils see for me texturally the Jonos is infinitely different to um to say the eight acres or the four acres and to to another analogy or another example, rather, um, there are a couple of semillons grown around the region in the Hunter that uh, some mm-hmm. are grown on clay and some are grown on the sand, and arguably the sand mm-hmm. are the better, the better mm-hmm. areas, particularly around um, the the dress circle at Braymore and and um, mm-hmm. and that sort of thing at HVD and and Trevina. But then you taste a semillon that's grown on these heavier clays and it's mm-hmm. again this heft and this weight this i guess the french call it ampleur um which mm-hmm. is which is like a weight or a or a um mm-hmm. a, yeah a heft to it so mm-hmm. can you unpick that for me and and, and mm-hmm. tell me what i'm missing oh i don't think you well that's just one thing no, what what you perceive is um, is your business. Most of well, most no, of that's tasting, a get out. I don't like that subjective. No, no, no. I'm sure that there's going to be wine, some wine tasting is subjective. I know, I know, but uh, and I you're think... so you're so predisposed to all sorts of things that and drinking wine is enjoyment. So what you get out of it and what you choose to call it, I mean, yeah, I, I and I'm certainly not disputing for a moment. The uh, kinds of things you're saying, uh, I wouldn't do that anyway, because wine tasting is subjective. Um, what the one thing I would question is, you're jumping from relating those perceptions to the soil. Okay, the soil is different. The soil here is clay. The soil there is sand. But how do you know that the air temperature is the same? How do you know that the soil biome is the same? Wherever very detailed ultraviolet or airflow measurements have been done in a vineyard, people have been astonished just how 
finally, these invisible climatic factors vary from place to place. Even the vine rows themselves can influence the airflow, therefore the humidity, therefore the temperature. And you've got a whole interacting array of climatic factors varying on a very fine scale. And they may well be different in this clay area from that sandy area. So we come along because we can see the clay and see the sand, and it sounds good. Oh, yeah, it's the clay that's doing it. It's the sand that's doing it. Now, I, I'm not, as I say, disputing your perception from here mm -hmm. and there. It's the jump to say, yeah, the soil is doing it. When we don't know how the soil would do it, and when we do know that these rather technical, not nice to write about factors and invisible factors are varying at the same time. And whenever scientific tests have been done along these lines, the variations have been due not to the soil, but to other factors which have to, which require time and cost and patience to sense and measure and collect the data, and at the end of the day, although it may be the reason it doesn't make good promotional material or journalistic copy, and so it's just put aside, oh, it's the soil that's doing it. And the, I came across a test just the other day to, to try and evaluate the role of the soil, and, well, to cut a long story short, it didn't work. It wasn't the soil that was doing it. But the mm. soil is visible. You can see it, and it sounds good. So I'm not uh, doubting uh, for a moment what you're outlining there, Daniel. It's just this jump that's saying, yeah, the soil is doing it, that I would question. That's fair enough. I think that's, that's more than fair enough. So in that respect, then, and I've always had a hunch, but climate is this extremely underrated component of... Um, influencing the ultimate expression of a wine, say. Um, well, we know this. We know this. We don't know how the soil would do it, apart from the water that I touched on. We don't know how what mechanism would the soil do, you know? The nutrients are coming from the humus, largely. How would the soil do it? We don't know. But there are umpteen papers coming out every month about how ultraviolet light intensity or humidity affects grape ripening and the development of some phenolic or some particular organic chemical in the in the grapes. We know how all these climate factors influence grape chemistry and therefore ultimately the flavor of the wine. So we know it happens. Uh, it's loads of research uh, going on at wine institutions around the world, Adelaide and places. Mm -hmm. um, you know, uh, and so there's no question that the climate's doing these things. It's just not an awful lot of fun to talk about, unlike the soil. <laughs> but yeah. I've got to say, incidentally, as a geologist, I'd love to be taking a different line here. I'd love to be arguing that geology is incredibly important. It's the geology that does everything. Everybody should learn geology, you know. Mm. Uh, that's, my, that's my intuitive starting position. And it is with so many things in life. When I was teaching students, I was always going about how geology underpins so many things about everyday life that we never think about. I'd love to be able to say that for wine, but when I look at it, I, I find it hard to see how it can be for the taste of wine. So interesting. That's so interesting. I, you know, it's, it's these 
I guess, narratives that get caught up and, um, and then run away from themselves. They get, they get, I guess, a life of their own. And you're, you're right. It's I mean, interesting. if you look at wine magazine articles or wine books from last century, before the turn of the millennium, you don't see the geology mentioned at all. None of this is talked about. Yeah, they talk at length about, you know, the first growth to the Medoc and all that sort of stuff. And um, apart from maybe a mention of the gravel in the Medoc or the, or the slate in the Moselle in, in, in Germany, the, the obvious things, geology is never mentioned. Uh, it's, just a, it's exploded in the last couple of decades. I think for <laughs> a non-scientific reason, let's put it that way. For, for perhaps romantic reasons. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. And the yearning to relate what we're putting in our mouths to a place, to nature, a backlash to industrial production, you know, and what could be more natural than the soil than the wine grower, the holy-handed, dirt under the fingernail wine grower, yeah, making this wine for us to drink. It's <laughs> lovely. And these days it's more important than ever with all the highly processed, industrial produced food and drink around. So yes, it, it, as I said, it, it, it um, ticks all the right boxes. I can see why we've got where we are, but that doesn't mean it holds up scientifically. Yeah, you, I don't think you'll ever get a job as a marketer, Alex, which is probably... <laughs> oh, I can wear a different hat. Uh, but no, I'm a scientist primarily, and so although it's against my intuition, I have to go where the evidence takes me. And the evidence takes me to uh, to a position where all this wine stuff uh, it's over exaggerated for marketing romantic purposes. I'm afraid. Yeah, I think. Yeah, well, that's fair enough. That's 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 fair enough. I think I liked um, Tessa Brown from Vignerons Schmaltzer and Brown in Beechworth. Um, she said in that article that I wrote, thankfully science at its core holds space for what it doesn't yet know. And I think, you know, as we go along and we sort of investigate this a little bit further, perhaps that climate narrative may imbue itself within, within some of these articles and stories and things that we, we talk about, because I think it is incredibly underrated as a, as a concept in wine and it has infinitely more influence given what you've said about geology and, and its rather lack of influence, that, that, that climate and microclimates, macroclimates, they all um, have a, a, a significantly greater impact, I suppose, than, um, than the, the bedrock. Just uh, say on a sloping vineyard, just a low wall or a little clump of bushes can interfere with the airflow. And that affects the humidity of the air. That affects the local temperature of the air. There are all these fine-scale variations that we don't, um, don't pick up on. And I know from my own vines, it may be less obvious in a hot sunny area like much of Australia, but um, the bunches at the front, so to speak, of the vine ripen differently to those in the middle and those at the back within centimeters of each other. Wow. Uh, you get my point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Anyway, we've, I've knocked uh, geology and wine sufficiently. Let's get on to beer and stuff. Well, I was going <laughs> to say to you, that was, that was going to be my next move. So this, this is an agnostic drinks podcast, and I know that you're an agnostic drink 
uh, connoisseur and writer, you've you've um, published a chapter in, a, in in the Encyclopedia of Geology, second edition, um, uh, which relates to the geology of wine, spirits, and beer. And you know, it's fascinating with all of these things: wine, spirits, and beer. Fundamentally, these are all agricultural products, which I think is a is a notion that gets overlooked a lot of the time, uh, and it bothers me quite a bit, to be honest with you, because I think it's it's led to a, a great misunderstanding of of um, these drinks. You know, if if there can be a concept that these products are of agricultural origin, that they have come from a place. Uh, I think that you can at least address a little bit more. You can have a little bit more reverence, I think, for for the drink ultimately. And beer is one of those things because it's so ubiquitous and everywhere. It's you can easily and and the industrial processes you know that it's often made by. Uh, you can overlook that agricultural component, and it's something that you address in that chapter. Um, the relationship between geology and beer. So I'm hoping you can sort of take me through the importance and how they interrelate with one another between geology and beer. Well, it's it's the completely opposite side of the coin because, as we've been saying, people love writing and talking about vineyard geology and wine and relating wine to the soil. Around us in the wine magazines and so on, you never hear about geology and beer. No. Things just don't compute. But I would argue that here there is a direct relationship, possibly even on the taste of the beer, but certainly historically, geology had a big role in helping define the classic styles of beer that are still with us today. Geology comes into beer to some extent through an influence on the grains, the cereals that are used in the brewing, the barley. There are papers about how barley grows better on this soil than that soil. So straight away, we're in the same world as, as wine, because mm-hmm. as I said, it's not irrelevant in wine. So yeah, it, there it is with the grain. And the same with the hops. The kind of hops and the way they develop depends on the soil to some extent and the drainage. and So, so that's all on the par with the wine, although you never hear about it, in the context of beer. But the big one with beer is the water. Uh-huh. For two reasons particularly. Beer, if you think about it, is mainly water. 95% or so of that beer in your glass is water. And unlike with spirit, which usually does involve distilling, and getting rid of the water and collecting the flavored alcohol. With beer, that water is the same water that was there at the very beginning. Hmm. That water has been there throughout. If it had a flavor at the very beginning, well, it might still be evident, but certainly it would have had a big role in the brewing. Right. How the brewing proceeds, what the brewer does, how he conducts his operations, that depends on the chemistry of the water. And that water, present throughout, is still there at the end, unlike with spirit, and certainly unlike wine, which proceeds as well water, mm. And the other reason is that certainly historically, most breweries had their own water supply, 
had their own wells, a lot still do in, in Europe anyway. And so the water they're using is groundwater. They pump it out of the ground where it has resided. And the water has sat there, having originated as rain somewhere for decades, maybe centuries even, in direct contact with the geology, with the aquifer. No selectivity here, like vine root. So anything in the rock that's remotely soluble over that period of time, that water will take in a little bit of it. So when the water comes out, it could be quite highly mineralized. It could have a fair amount of dissolved this, that, and the other from the rocks. And there it is in the water at the beginning of the drought and there at the end. And so for those reasons, this is a very different situation with the brewing. And it's so important, the chemistry of the brewing water, that all brewers know about brewing chemistry. It's part of the training. The textbooks about brewing chemistry, water chemistry for brewing, and according to whether the water's got a lot of this or the other, uh, the brewer will adapt his techniques and the kind of beer that's produced will, will vary. What you never see mentioned in these brewing textbooks is the step before that. Well, why do the waters have this different chemistry? And of course, the reason is the geology, as I've just said, the geology of the aquifer. And uh, you never see this said. But for that reason, I would argue that fundamentally, geology has a prime role in brewing and in beer. And even though these days the modern brewer will just tinker with the water, manipulate it to get the chemistry he wants, the geology determines his starting point. It will determine whether he needs to add this or do that, depends on the geology. If it needs it, well, he'll add it. And so you'd then hear about the geology, but lurking there all the time, I would say it, uh, it has an importance far, far greater than the stuff with wine that you do read about all the time. That's so interesting. I mean, you, you, you think of some of the great beer styles of the world, Czech lagers, for example, Guinness, mm-hmm. um, yep. bitters in, in, in throughout the UK and London and, and that sort of yep. thing and up in, in Edinburgh. Um, yep. And these are all places where yep. certain beer styles have manifest themselves over time. And as you point out in this, in this chapter, it, it, it has a lot to do with the water. And as you've just said, um, and and I guess the thing is today the advantage of of, of modern brewing is that you can dial in um, yes. the 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 constituent water that you need that the, whatever yes. it is to to brew a yes. style of beer and you can effectively synthesize the place. Yes. But ultimately, just like really, I guess, with some of the greatest wines or some of the greatest spirits or some of the greatest anything really, beef or any sake and so on and so forth. You, the, the ones that aren't synthesized, the ones that aren't really um, artifice, they're the, 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 the most, in, well, again, subjective, but for me personally, I think they're the most enjoyable. So this idea mm-hmm. of a Czech Pilsner um, mm-hmm. and you've got a table in this, in this chapter uh, outlining some of the, the major places like Faisen or Fort Collins, um, Dortmund, Vienna, Munich, Edinburgh, London, uh, Burton, which is um, up in the north, right? In the north, uh, what? The northeast, northwest? Burton, it, it's in what we call the English Midlands. Well, in the Midlands. In the middle okay, my apologies. 
And it's a very famous brewing town, yeah. Right, right. Uh, IPAs. IPAs. There you go. Okay. So, and the same with, with, with in Newcastle, with Newcastle Nut Browns and things like this, Guinness. Maybe yeah. take me through these sort of iconic beer styles and how they relate to these places via the yeah. geology. It started really about with the Industrial Revolution, let's say a couple of hundred years ago. Prior to that, beer brewing was a cottage street corner industry. But when transport became easier, transporting beers around the place, and things became more industrialized, then brewing became more centralized and more industrial. And it quickly became clear that certain places brewed better beer than others. Better meaning in tune with the style that was in fashion at the time and in that particular area. Mm -hmm. So in England, the style that was starting to emerge, because they had new kinds of hops and things like that, was what today we call pale ale, or bitter in an English pub. And a number of places could uh, apparently brew this beer nicely, but none more so than Burton, Burton upon the River Trent in the English Midlands. And Burton just produced the nicest tasting pale ale. Nobody knew why. There was a very strong suspicion it was the water. It's in the water at Burton, but it took until about the 1880s before the chemistry was cracked. And it turns out that the Burton waters are very highly mineralized because, as I said, of the geology there, it turns out. The rock, bedrock, the aquifers at Burton are of the Permian Triassic age. There's a lot of salt in them, or things like, well, sulfate in particular, calcium sulfate, magnesium sulfate, because of the way those rocks formed, which I won't go into, and a fair bit of carbonate. And so there's a lot of stuff, highly mineralized uh, waters, which you can see in that table you just mentioned. Daniel. Mm -hmm. And incidentally, should any listeners want to get a copy of that article, maybe they could uh, contact you and you give them my email address and I'll be, I'll be glad to send them a PDF of the article and you can look at the table. But a glance at that table tells you straight away the numbers are high at Burton. There's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of sulfate. Yeah, what have you got? 352... What is this measured in one second? Um, uh, parts per million. Parts, parts per million. million calcium. Uh, per yeah. 24 the high parts numbers, per I mean, million magnesium. The numbers in isolation don't mean an awful right. lot. But look at the contrast with Czechoslovakia, with Pilsen in, yeah. the, in the Czech Ten. Republic, which are tiny. Yeah, that's the difference. But sticking with wow. Burton for the moment, a lot of sulfate. Sulfate has a taste. You don't get sulfate in wine. Vines don't need sulfate. But in water... It's got a sulfury, sulfury uh, whiff about it. Some beer connoisseurs reckon they, they can smell the sulfur in Burton Ale. Uh -huh. The uh, Burton Snatch, they call it. This is some sulfury thing. It's there because of the geology. And it turns out that that chemistry is just right. I won't go into the, the, the technology. It's just right for brewing pale ales. 
and uh, the pH, the acidity is just right because of the, the, the carbonate, bicarbonate concentration and so on. Just chance, really. Burton happened to have the right chemistry. But the other interesting thing here is that sulfate, that unusually high sulfate concentration, gives the beer a stability. Back in those early days when beer was being transported around the place, it was very unstable. Transport was slow on the canals and stuff, and then in the pub, it was in danger of going off. Mm. So a beer that had that extra stability, which the Burton Ales did, because of the sulfate, we now know, because of the geology, then big advantage. And the Burton Brewers found that if they brewed their beers a little stronger, more hot, more grains, uh, it was even more stable, and they could export it. And this style became known as export ale. And that term, export, has become mean a little bit stronger, I suppose, these days, yeah. <laughs> higher quality. But, but that's how that came about. And in fact, the Burton brewers found that if they brewed it yet stronger, particularly more hot, it was really quite a stable beer. It could even withstand the sail ship journey to the colonies in India. Yes. Okay. So this is where you get India Pale Ale from because exactly. that's why it's so exactly. strong and hoppy because it and it's designed. interesting that the, uh, India Pale Ale more, almost died the death a few decades. It was a historic thing. Nobody wanted that. We've got to thank our American cousins, West Coast. Craft Beer in America, for bringing it back. They rediscovered IPA. Yeah. And IPA is a big thing in the States. And now Steamship. everywhere else in the, in the craft, craft brewing industry, everybody, every craft brewer has got an IPA. And I would argue that IPA is what it is essentially because of the geology at towns like Burton. Oh, Burton, right. So interestingly uh, enough, though, the West Coast IPA, which everybody tends to know about rather than, I guess, the traditional Burton IPA, is that um, they more associate hops, high hops with that, as opposed to the water, the geology, um, and, and those other factors. Uh, well, yes, fair comment, but, but the brewer will make sure his water has a good high sulfate, yeah. carbonate. He will emulate brewing water. He will know from his brewing training what the water chemistry at Burton is. And uh, believe me, if he needs to add things to make his California water the same as Burton, he can buy Burton salt. He can burtonize the water. I'm not kidding. You, you, yeah. It's I think product. I put a picture in that article. It's like champagne. Yeast. The home brewer can do this. You can buy little sachets of of Burton salt. And are they, they talk about? Are they? I mean, can you buy Burton salts? And are they from Burton nowadays, or is it something you could well, again synthesize? Like, potentially, anybody can make. We know what the chemistry is. Yeah, anybody can make it. Um, but it's it's still called. Well, often called Burton salt, and, and brewers talk about Burtonizing the water if they want to brew um, a, um, an IPA type thing. So they may not put that on the on the beer label and talk about the hops and so on. But um, but so important is the brewing chemistry that the brewer will have made sure his his chemistry is is appropriate. And as I say, ultimately and certainly historically, that was due to the geology 
at towns like Burton and there's another little town in England called Tadcaster, which still has three major breweries there. And it's not quite the same geology, but it ends up with the same chemistry. And so Caddy, Tadcaster Pale Ales are also quite important. And it's ultimately because of the geology. Uh. And then as I say in that article, the contrast is with Germany and the, uh, particularly with the Czech Republic, where at the same time as this passion for pale ales in England, they have new hops which they've grown in Germany uh, and uh, Czechoslovakia. As it, well, it wasn't even Czechoslovakia then. The, 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 uh, the Prussian Empire they tended to speak German a lot, even in, in the Czech Republic. And um, they found that the style of beer they wanted was uh, lighter, cleaner, more refreshing. <laughs> they get warmer summers than we do in England, maybe that's part of it. Uh. And they found that if that beer, if, if they, when they brewed it, they kept it for a few weeks or even two or three months, they stored it for a while, for which the German word, as I say, German, even the Czech Republic is talking about, is lager. They lagered the beer, and that style became known as lager. And the place, rather parallel to Burton, that seemed to be able to do it par excellence, was Pilsenia, P-I-L-Z-E-N in Czech. Uh, that style became known as the Pilsner, yes. in German speak, or Pils. And that's the classic lager. You still see this word Pils, Pilsen, Pilsner. On, on lager labels, especially if it's trying to be a, a good lager. A proper pills, It originated it. from that town in, um, in, in what's now the Czech Republic. The Czech. And it's the same story as with Burton, except the other side of the coin. There, it turns out, the geology is such that there's very little soluble in the rock. There are uh, what we call silicate minerals, which are highly insoluble. And um, so the water, when it's pumped out for the breweries there, the Pilsner breweries, is very pure. And that's why the numbers that you mentioned, Daniel, are so low, because very little dissolved. But that lends itself to lager brewing. And so that's why those beers developed there, again, because of the geology, but for very different reasons. So what and I then to cut along... Go on. No, sorry, carry on. Well, I was just going to go on to the Guinness thing, just around this. Uh, we've been talking a long time, so I've got to get Guinness in. The, yeah. the, um, so, so, so Pilsenia and Burton found they naturally had ideal brewing waters for their respective styles of the geology. But around Munich, for example, which is superb hop growing area, Europe's biggest hop fields are not far from Munich, for geological reasons, with these alkaline soils, well-drained soils, a good pop. But that same alkaline water wasn't all that good for brewing. You need a certain pH, a small pH range, acidity range, alkalinity range in the brewing water to get a, to get good beers. And uh, the Munich waters are a little bit outside that range, a little bit too high a pH. They found, and other people in that part of your Vienna, Dortmund, that if they roasted the grain mm -hmm. before the brewing, we now know what happens is the roasting releases 
phosphate from the grains and it, it uh, brings phosphoric acid into the brewing water. That acidity brings the pH into the desirable range and so you get a good brewing, a good beer, but you end up with a darker beer. Yes. So you get your darker lagers of both parts of the world. Yeah. And the extreme example was over in Ireland, where a young man who had done his brewing training in London, where they have a lot of hard waters, carbonate-rich waters, and the chalk underneath London, he'd learned there that if you roast the grains, you get a dark beer. That's where your dark London porters come from. Mm -hmm. Back in Dublin, he found the waters were incredibly hard because Dublin's founded on limestone. Carboniferous age limestone, as it happened, very hard water, lousy for, for brewing, really. So all he could do was roast the hell out of these grains and hope he could shift the pH of the brewing waters into this appropriate window, which worked, except that he ended up with a pretty unusual beer that yeah. was thick and grainy and rather bitter and, uh, and very dark. Delicious. And dark. so this chappie, whose name was Arthur Guinness, had to advertise that beer pretty heavily to um, to get it uh, to sell. That's good for he you. Did, and I don't know about in Australia, but certainly in Britain, I think nifty advertising has always been a hallmark of Guinness. Very clever advertising, yeah, and it's always been the case because they relied on it to shift this very unusual beer. It was unusual because of its thickness and darkness. That came about because of the heavy roasting of the, of the grain. We talk about black malt to start with. That came about because of the very hard waters. And that came about, which is what you never hear about, because of the geology at Dublin. And so for these reasons, I would argue that in contrast with wine, which you do always hear about, with beer, yeah, the geology is pretty central, certainly with these classic styles. And even today, in that at least the brewer has a starting point with his water to decide what, if anything, he needs to add to it to get the water chemistry he needs for the style he wants to brew. <laughs> but these days, they brew lagers in Dublin. You know, they can do it. They know the chemistry. But nevertheless, the geology is lurking down there as the, as the fundamental starting point. You know what I've found really interesting? I've been thinking about as you've been talking and, and doing the comparing and contrasting between the, the, the geological importance of, of beer and I guess the, 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 the other side of that, the, the less important um, geological factors in wine, even though um, I guess the, the, the going narrative is the opposite. Um, yeah, yeah, these exactly. beers manifest themselves according to the geology in these particular places. And those particular styles are um, copied ad infinitum all across the world. You could, you could effectively create a, a variant of Guinness or a variant of Pilsner, and people do this all the time, IPAs, so on and so forth. But there are no laws such as there are in wine, such as the, um, the AOC or the Dioce in, in Italy, the uh, Appellation, um, I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce it, Contrôle, I think it is. But anyway, the point is 
it's interesting that these these laws and rules and regulations in wine as the AOC um which demarcate a particular terroir and a particular location and place and site and so on and so forth and it imbues itself with with the geology and 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 the geography and all of that sort of stuff but beer doesn't have that and yet you're arguing that it's infinitely more important in beer well, than it here's is with wine here. I can't go into this. This is a, this is a whole different talk. But uh, essentially, w- wine is seen as the connoisseur's drink. It's seen as intellectual, a, a sipping drink, you know, to think and talk about. And Pontificate. <laughs> Beer is the great quaffing drink of the working classes. Yeah. Knock yeah. it back as, you know, <laughs> especially in Australia, you know all to about it. To paint with a broad know? brush, yeah. Um, because because it's just a it's just a um, working man's coughing drink. You can argue. I'm not going to take the time to do it here. That it should be the other way around. Yes. Wine is just fermented grape juice. If you get some grapes and squash them, you'll get wine. It does it itself. That's as simple as that. <laughs> beer is much more complicated. There are lots of steps in brewing beer. There are lots of ingredients. And chemically, there are far more flavor constituents in beer than there are in wine, even more. And one can make a case that really, in terms of complexity and material to think and talk about and sip and so on, that should be beer. And beer is at least as old in antiquity as wine, incidentally. The earliest known writing is a recipe for beer. Uh, but of course... The way things have evolved, for whatever reason, it's the other way round. I know Wine of a few brewers that you would drink. get along with, with with that statement. I know that there's <laughs> a few that have argued well, that point to me many times. And oh, really? Okay. Convincingly, yeah, yeah. to be fair. Convincingly, to be fair. Uh, you know, you know, it's a historical, societal thing. How did it How did? Yeah, it it's a class thing, I suppose, as well. Well, yes, but why should that be? Why didn't the upper classes drink beer? Uh, it didn't happen like that. I think way back, royalty took to wine. Wine very quickly became the sacred drink, and early kings were buried, queens were buried with. Ah, yeah. There's a good historical story about why it happened, but happened it did. And in retrospect, yeah, you could argue it was the way around. Beer is the more complex drink. <laughs> Not doing denigrating wine in any way. It's complex too, of course, and worthwhile. This is the beautiful thing about this podcast, though, Alex, is that I I enjoy all of the drinks and I enjoy talking about them equally and learning about them all. So I know that certainly the wine episodes do a hell of a lot better than any um, episode that doesn't necessarily feature wine. But, um, you know, it's an interesting thing. Look at all the books that are published every year, all the magazines that are published on wine. Precisely. How many yeah. on beer? It's a, it's a whole entire culture. and they. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting because of my position as well. I, I do write about beer every single week, actually, for the, for the Newcastle Herald. But um, I also do quite a lot of wine writing. And um, I've never really, f- <laughs> I guess engage to i've never when it comes to writing about beer that the people that uh know me always think that i write about wine and that i'm just dabbling in the beer thing um for a for a lark or something but um 
you know, it's it's usually um, I just haven't taken the time, I guess, to get to know me. Whatever. Um. <laughs> but at least you do write about beer. You know, the number of journalists writing about beer must be a fraction of those. I'll write about anything. I'll write about <laughs> anything that interests me. That's that's <laughs> my um that's my call sign is tales of interest. Things that interest me and uh, and oh, hopefully quite a few you as newspapers well. Newspapers in this country have a, a wine column every week, you know. I can't think of any that have a beer column. But yeah, anyway. I'm fortunate in that I can do both. So I usually wrap these uh, episodes up with a series of um, short, sharp questions, um, not entirely related to exactly what we've been talking about. So uh, if you'd indulge me, Alex, I'd like to ask you those questions. I don't mind. We've been going on a long time, but uh, yeah, yeah, I'm happy. Let's do it. What do you least love about geology? No, gosh. Least love. What do I least love? Wow. <laughs> Collecting my thoughts. What do I least love about it? Um, I'm afraid it's a bit um, by its very nature. It's not very black and white. It's very hard to pigeonhole. Uh, and therefore, it makes it quite hard to explain to people and to communicate. I mean, even the names of rocks, um, I'm sure most listeners think that, oh, well, um, schist, say, you mentioned schist in South Island of New Zealand. Oh, it's well defined. It's, uh, a rock is either a schist or it isn't schist. No, it isn't. Once you start looking at it, some geologists would disagree. Well, I'd call this a schist. No, that's not a schist. And it, this pervades a lot of geology by the very nature of the beast. You know, it's not like animals. An animal is either a giraffe or it isn't a giraffe. Rocks don't classify very easily. And so many other things to do with the earth um, are very hard to classify in the way we like to do in nature. And so this is a bit frustrating, but uh, so that's something we've got to work with in terms of understanding and communicating and teaching and so on. So there's one thing that comes off the top of my head. I like it. What do you most love about geology? Oh, I think... I think, uh, think in a word, travel. I mean, it's still the case now with this wine thing, but long before I started writing about wine, when I was a, a more mainstream geologist, uh, I'd get to travel a lot, but particularly I'd get to travel to out-of-the-way places, places that people don't normally go, or more normal people go. You know, obscure little islands in the middle of the Pacific, this kind of thing, because of something about the geology. And so I've been to some pretty out-of-the-way places, fascinating places, because of geology. That's very cool. Is there any particular, that, like, is there one particular that stands out that you think, I can't believe that I'm, I'm here, that you can recall? Well, uh, I used to do quite a lot in one that's called the Ocean Drilling Program. So we'd go off on this drill ship, international consortium, quite an expensive operation, and we'd be at sea for a couple of months, and occasionally we'd have to dock at some obscure little island, uh, uh, Mari uh, you know, over the Marianas trenches, and we'd, we'd have to stop at the Marianas Island to re refuel with something or other, or I've even been to Iwo Jima, for example, mm -hmm. which you will have heard of. These, yeah. these funny, I did a lot of work in the Western Pacific, and so it would take me to some pretty 
obscure islands, and in some cases, islands that I'd heard the name. I haven't got ideas. Saipan is another one through the, through the war. Uh, and that was kind of fun. And most tourists just wouldn't go to those places. We needed to because we'd run out of water or something. Wow. Well, uh, what's one word to describe what you do? Have fun too. Am I allowed? You can have a, uh, we'd call it a compound word. Yes. Indulger. Yeah. Okay. I'm having fun. That's... I mean, I'm doing this wine thing. I hope it's a contribution. I feel I've got an expertise that I ought to share, but I'm not here to, with an axe to grind or anything like that. I, uh, I'm just laying it on the table. This is where my expertise takes me. This is what has to be the case, I think. Yeah. Take it or leave it. I, I think just it's very important. Myself. It's very, very important uh, conversation. I mean, yeah, your your articles in Decanter and, uh, you know, if you've been written about by people like Andrew Jeffett and Jamie Good, I think you're uh, making a contribution to the to the scene. Think of a favorite album or a piece of music. What is it and what do you love about it? Ooh, it's a single piece of music. I, I enjoy music a lot. I, I listen to a lot of music, both classical, the, the classic classics, you know, the great, Mozart yes. and Beethoven and that. And, um, so I go to Austria to see the birthplaces of these people and, of course, the vineyards. Ah, but, yeah, hey, I was, I was a teenager at the time of the birth of rock and roll. Okay. I saw Little Richard and Chuck Berry and people explode on the scene. And I was at university in Liverpool when the Beatles surfaced. Get out. So I like to think I was privileged what? to witness pivotal uh, events. Hey, I'll go with rock and roll. Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good. Absolute groundbreaking. Deep down in Louisiana, close to New Orleans, way back up in the woods among the airways. Incredible. And then the clever lyrics, clever lyrics that follow. I talked to Chuck, I talked to Chuck Berry while he's still alive. He was my hero. But oh, I could go on for another hour here, Daniel. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I have a strong inclination right now, and I'm not going to indulge, but to start a whole new podcast about <laughs> seeing the Beatles at university, uh, assumably at <laughs> the Cavern Club or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I... And I and I saw a lot of the American blues greats in, uh, you know, John Lee Hooker and Sonny Brian Williamson in the cavern. Oh, backed no. by, come on. Back, backed by Eric Clapton. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> so I feel, I, feel, I feel privileged. Oh, as well you should. I, I remember um, I was friends with a fella in London a few years ago, um, Cameron, uh, he saw The Who and he used to get around Acton and that sort of thing. And, and he was at the Bag of Nails the night that um, Hendrix rocked up there with, um, yeah, with you know, his band and yeah, yeah. Blue Clapton off the stage. And he was recalling that he was actually more interested in chasing a girl at the time than, than listening to what was going on on the stage, which is <laughs> hilarious. The difference is that sadly, Jimmy's long gone. Clapton is still around at the top of his game. Yes, fair play to him. Having Absolutely. played with just about everybody who's anybody. That's it. Absolutely. Batman, Superman, or Spider-Man? Batman, 
<laughs> completely empty response. I can't expand on that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a fairly superficial question in light of what we've just been talking about. Um, okay, well, if we're ever in a position to recreate... I said Batman because that's a great opening riff. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's you a know. classic. Mind you, yeah. Spider-Man's theme tune's pretty gnarly as well. Um, yeah, okay, okay. <laughs> I was watching a program on the telly last night about Richie Blackmore. The Richie Blackmore story. Right. You know, possibly the all time greatest guitar riff, Fire on the Water. Smoke on the Water, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Great <laughs> stuff. Okay. Anyway, we're here talking about wine and stuff. Yeah. Well, sort of. If we were ever in a position to recreate the T Rex, should we do it? No. No, nature takes its course, nature evolves. Certainly it did back then when humans weren't messing it up like now. Nature made that happen. It's not for us to lord it over nature and say, you got it wrong. We are going to, we humans are going to bring it back, override nature. No. Okay. Oh, we're getting into philosophy here. Let's not go down there. <laughs> humans and nature. Oh, God. Well, I think there's a there's a particular book that you wrote that I think every single wine lover and wine aficionado, wine dabbler, like anyone literally interested in wine at all, has to have this book on their shelf: Vineyards, Rocks, and Soils: The Wine Lover's Guide to Geology. Um, you got a glowing review from none other than Andrew Jefford, who features on episode one of the Fermenting Place podcast. Um, but in that book, you introduced. I guess a basic geology within the context of wine and you know, you correct these misconceptions that we've been speaking about these tropes about the effects of rocks and minerals on the wines that we drink. So I wanted to give that a bit of a plug and um, I will do my best. I'll try and um, well, I'll put your contact details or, or something. I'll, I'll put an email address or something in the show notes so that people can contact you to try and get yeah, their hands sure. on a copy of the, um, Geology of Wine, Spirits and Beer PDF yeah. that we referred to. Um, yeah, you wouldn't come across it otherwise. It's hidden away in this big and very expensive encyclopedia. Fair but, play. Yeah, I'd be glad to share a PDF, yeah. So where else can people find out uh, more about you, Alex, and, and potentially get in touch? Well, I'm happy enough for you to share my email address. This is a particular... You want to, you want to, you want to or if somebody would like some copies of, of, of some articles, I can send PDFs. Well, a quick Google of your current. name will bring up a, a load of load of information and articles, um, ones that you've Well, you may, may or may not get the articles. Um, you know, there's copyright and all that. But um, I've got PDFs which I'm allowed to share with colleagues uh, with no money. So I can send people copies of particular things. Um, Best I can say, really. <laughs> well, that's fine. Alex, this has been an awesome conversation, a real privilege, a real pleasure. Um, you know, probably there's a few people out there that, uh, you know, scratching their heads a little bit at the moment with regards to the content. But, uh, hey, the science is the science, and um, it makes it even more interesting and special, I think. So well, I wanted I to thank so. you for sharing your time and energy with me. Mm, yeah, pleasure. Hi, food for thought, anyway. I hope what I've been saying. Yeah, yeah. I absolutely yeah. think all so. good fun. All good fun.
Thanks for listening to episode 36 of the Fermenting Place podcast. What do you think? Did you enjoy it? You, you can reach out to me via email, hello at fermentingplace.com. Otherwise, you can leave a comment if you're using Apple Podcasts or you can tweet me on Twitter or tag me on Instagram at fermentingplace. Or again, simply shout out, say hello, give me a guest suggestion via email, hello at fermentingplace.com. Okay, that's enough from me for now. Thank you for listening. Take care. Don't forget to eat, drink and be merry. And I'll speak with you next time on the Fermenting Place podcast.